I really wish that I did not have to talk about this today. Pope Francis continues to be in the news. He's evicted Cardinal Burke from his living quarters in Rome. He specifically said that Burke has been a source of, quote, disunity in the church. I think this one was different than Bishop Strickland. Bishop Strickland was very outspoken. He's very public. Cardinal Burke, from all accounts, was very even personally uncomfortable at the idea of criticizing the man Bergoglio, now Pope Francis, and Cardinal Burke getting whacked here, basically. I think this has really scared other cardinals as well. I think this is really going to have a chilling effect potentially on everyone because it's like, well, who's safe now? Cardinal Burke never made a personal comment on Francis's character. He's never made a personal comment uh, on- But I will. Yeah. <laughs> I will. <laughs> All right, everyone, welcome back to the Loopcast. Today, I'm joined by my hosts, Erica and Josh. Josh did just get a haircut. He let us know before the recording. Looks great. Uh, today, we continue to talk about something that we don't love talking about per se, but we feel is necessary to be honest about. So uh, over the past few weeks, we've covered the dubia when it comes to the synod. We've covered Bishop Strickland. And now Pope Francis continues to be in the news. Uh, he has evicted, uh, he has, he's evicted, uh, Cardinal Burke from his living quarters in Rome. Many see this as a kind of a naked partisan attack, it feels like. And so we want to, we, we've been able to sit with this a little bit. And we want to be completely honest about what we know right now and the implications of the actions. Erica, what do we know about Cardinal Burke and Pope Francis right now? So this is a developing story for sure. There are a few facts that have been confirmed by multiple sources, including the pillar, which is one of our go-to, you know, we can rely on there. Their judgment. A lot of the sources, I will say, are still anonymous. And when you hear the full story, you will understand why they would be anonymous. So, what do we actually know? It has been confirmed that there was a meeting in Rome on November 20th at which punitive actions against Burke were discussed, and Pope Francis was present and participating in that discussion. And these punitive actions against Burke included. Uh, depriving him of his his Roman apartment. So every retired cardinal is basically given somewhere to live in Rome. And with that comes a stipend, which if Burke was to be removed, evicted from his apartment and leave Rome, he would also lose the stipend attached to that. Um, there's no clarity yet on whether it's one of them or both of them or exactly what the action will be. We're waiting on that to happen um, but the Pope did mention specifically, and again, this has been confirmed now by multiple sources, first-hand accounts, people who are at the meeting. He specifically said that Burke has been a source of, quote, disunity in the church. And some reports have characterized that as he called Burke his enemy. But the word that's been confirmed is he's a source of disunity. And again, that comes from the pillar the AP added to that, he, the AP reported that Francis said he was removing Burke's privileges of having a subsidized Vatican apartment and salary as a retired cardinal because he was using those privileges against the church. That was from another person who was briefed after the meeting on the Pope's measures. And as you can imagine, the backlash, the outcry, the overreactions, the underreactions <laughs> have been manifold in the days following this news. 
Yeah. So, but I think it's important for, there's people in my camp who maybe have heard of Cardinal Burke when it came to the dubia. He's one of the Cardinals that presented some of the concerns about the Senate, but don't really understand his impact or, or legacy as a Cardinal. Who who was Cardinal Burke? Why, why is he considered by Pope Francis a source of disunity? Oh, I mean, you're talking about a man who went to school in La Crosse, Wisconsin, just like my father. Um, my father wasn't Catholic at the time, but uh, Raymond Burke became Bishop of La Crosse and served there for several years. And then he was elevated to St. Louis. And in fact, that was the first time the Catholic left kind of went crazy because he was in St. Louis from 2004 to 2008. And if you'll remember, well, Pogo, you're probably three years old, but John Kerry was running for president <laughs> in the United States. And John Kerry, like our current president, is Catholic but supports abortion, which is, of course, a contradiction, which Cardinal, at the time, Archbishop Burke made the point. He's like, you can't be Catholic and receive communion. That's doesn't That doesn't work. And so when John Kerry would campaign in Missouri, because at the time, Missouri was a swing state, he said, you are not to present yourself to, to for communion. You're not allowed to go to uh, to receive communion because you're abortion, you're Catholic, you claim to be Catholic and you support abortion. So that was the first time the Catholic left just really lost it. And they're the ones that sowed division and made it really tough for him to, to continue as bishop. And they kept complaining and complaining. And eventually, Colonel Burke is a very smart man. And so it made sense for him to be elevated uh, to the position of uh, the Supreme Tribunal of the Apostolic Signatura. That's like, it's kind of like the Supreme Court for the Catholic Church. And so it, it kind of, you know, the church wants to try to move past animosity. And so they bring him to Rome and he does very great. And Pope Benedict was very happy with him being there. Um, and, uh, but, and he served the church for many years. And it's like kind of like a thankless job. Um, but it's very important. And he put his good uh, intellect to use there. Um, but as Pope Francis got elected, yeah, he he certainly had his issues with uh, Colonel Burke, and a lot, you know, Colonel Burke is considered to be pretty traditional, pretty conservative, and you know, Pope Francis likes to make a mess. He the biggest thing about the the Francis uh, papacy, I would say, is he starts saying a bunch of things that naturally lead to a conclusion, but then he pulls back right at the last second and doesn't say anything, and everyone in the audience just assumes he thinks, oh, well, maybe. The church is totally okay with transgender, you know, maybe the church is totally okay with, you know, uh, communion for divorced couples. He keeps, you know, he leads you right to that edge and gets everyone thinking, well, so what happens is all the lefty Catholics are like, we know in, uh, in his heart of hearts, he agrees with us, but it's the Vatican, the arch conservatives in the Vatican, which is the biggest joke I've ever heard. Like Colonel Burke is probably the only conservative in the Vatican. <laughs> the rest of them are more liberal than Francis <laughs> for the most part. And so, uh, you know, they, it, Francis has played this kind of game, his entire papacy. And so Colonel Burke with the first dubia, the dubia is this list of questions. Basically, he set it up in such a way where you can just say, hey, we want clarity. Do you really think this? Yes or no? And the Pope never answered the dubia, and it became this thing for years and years and years. Why won't the Pope answer this dubia? Why won't the Pope answer? We just want to know. We just want clarity. And uh, that's the point that Pope Francis is getting at, that 
by he's pointing out why yeah, I didn't answer these questions. He's pointing out that I won't, you know, explain myself when I'm not clear on church teachings. He's the source of division. And I'd like to say, hey, guess what, Pope Francis? You're the source of division when you won't be clear on what teaching the teaching of the church is. It's not Cardinal Burke. Give me a break. I think this one was different than Bishop Strickland because Bishop Strickland was very outspoken. He's very public. Uh, he didn't pull punches. Not to say that Cardinal Burke did, but Bishop Strickland was vi- he he understood potentially mm-hmm. the consequences. Cardinal Burke, from all accounts, and the pillar had a good account on this, was very even personally uncomfortable at the idea of criticizing the character of the man Bergoglio, now now Pope Francis. Whenever he spoke uh, critically, it was about his leadership of the church and how he safeguarded basically the eternal truths. Right. He's much more safe so this, in his criticism. When, when he, right. He was careful. Not that Strickland was uncareful. Right. And Cardinal Burke getting whacked here, basically, by taking away his salary and taking away his living quarters. I think this has really scared other cardinals as well. I think this is really going to have a chilling effect potentially on everyone because it's like, well, who's safe now? Right. Exactly. I mean, this is kind of, we spoke about this. We were discussing Strickland and it's kind of putting the American bishops on notice, right? So Strickland, and this is one of the criticisms people have had of him in the feedback since we did that episode, um, is that, you know, Strickland, while, you know, obviously doctrinally very sound, agrees that Francis is the Pope, he's not an imposter, but at the same time was maybe imprudent in the way that he went about putting that out on social media, et cetera, over the years. You can't say that of Burke, right? Very prudent. He, He has been super, very prudent and deferential, even to the point of some people on the quote unquote right, for lack of a better term, criticizing him for it and saying, you know, I think this goes back to the first real crossfire quote unquote, he had with Francis was criticizing the decision in Amoris Laetitia to allow that, that. And again, not allow saying that church teaching had changed on civilly remarried, divorced Catholics receiving communion, but saying that pastorally, that footnote eight in Amoris Laetitia that everyone goes to, and Burke saying just something along the lines of it would be impossible for a Catholic in mortal sin to receive Holy Communion because that's what the church has always taught. And Francis taking that, it seems now, as you know, a notch in, in a, a strike against Burke. And I would say, too, um, the most recent dubia, so the first dubia that Burke signed onto, the 2016 dubia, I believe he's the only living cardinal uh, from that list of men who signed the first list of dubia that was really asking about, has, has the church's approach to morality changed? Is it true that moral theology needs to change in accord with scientific progress or the signs of the times? That really, that fundamental question still has not been answered going into the dubia that we covered this fall, the 2023 dubia ahead of the synod. And But again, like Tom, you're so right that Cardinal Burke, and I have friends who are very close to him personally, they can't say enough about how um, respectful he is of the office of the papacy, how much he loves the church and loves Jesus Christ, and that his his entire interest this time has been to protect the teaching of the faith as given to us by Jesus Christ. He has never made a personal comment on Francis's character. He's never made a personal comment on ah, you know this. It was a mistake but to I elect will. him. Yeah. I think- but, I will. but Mercer has no I such think inhibitions. Pope Francis, I think Pope Francis is a very petty man 
I think his actions against Strickland, well, again, overboard. Why would you punish Strickland and not James Martin? It's because you find one to be unacceptable yeah. and the other one you're perfectly okay with. Or and then with, with going after Colonel Burke, again, as you say, using the appropriate deference and prudence, and it still doesn't matter. This petty pope slaps him down and, and punishes him. And it's like, to me, again, it's weaponizing the papacy to punish your enemies and reward your friends. And you're making it to be the a, a big, big city political machine instead of the mystical body of Christ, like this beautiful church we have, and the bride of Christ, whatever. But I, I, I just I feel like Pope Francis again is just acting so heady and it lashes out at anyone who doesn't. Uh, completely agree with everything he's doing he is making a mess and not a good mess by the way you know here it is 10 years later and it's just the church is messier than it's ever been it's not helpful this uh... right kind of two points along the lines and we've pointed this out before with the strickland case that coming on the heels of all this rhetoric about synodality and listening and openness and that the church will now be governed by not one man sitting in his throne of power and then to immediately turn around and have these two blows right in a row, following one another um, against these these priests, these prelates. It's just, it's so hypocritical. And the second point, and again, this comes from friends who are personal, personal acquaintances with Cardinal Burke. The irony here is that Cardinal Burke's the kind of man who he could care less about where he lives, that taking away his apartment and his salary, he's probably like, thank you, Jesus, for this humiliation. Thank you that I will now be closer to you and die in poverty. Amen. And it's just... It's like, well, didn't you have a story about him living in New York? Uh, no. So this is actually um, a fr the, my friend. They visited his cardinal apartment in Rome, which Heidi Schlumpf at the National Catholic Reporter made some comment about like, <laughs> it's 4,400 square feet. My house for four is only 2,600 square feet. And you're like, what are you yeah, talking like, about? That was the big, that was the big dunk line that they all came out with. Like they all sent out the message. Well, I guess like, he oh, deserved it the square then. Footage. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah, anyway, blah, blah, blah. Enough about Heidi. <laughs> But so my friend, he, they visit Cardinal Burke. They go to this apartment. They go in the front door. It is very palatial. And they're sent up an elevator. So they go into the elevator. They go up the elevator to the second floor. And they're like, oh, we'll go to the Cardinal's apartment. They're like, I thought this was the Cardinal's apartment. Take a long walk all the way back through all these rooms. And then they find this little, like, basically the equivalent of a closet in which there is a cot and a bookshelf and one little window and that's where Burke actually lives in this huge palatial mansion that he was assigned in Rome. So, I mean, the guy is, by all accounts, just the most humble, soft-spoken, quiet man. And to go after him, like you said, Josh, it, it, it's hard to interpret it as, if the reports are all true, it's hard to interpret it as anything but small right. and petty. Can I... Can I confirm too, like Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict, they didn't do this thing. No, no, no. Right? <laughs> I'd wished I they mean, did at some point. I mean, McCarrick. Exactly. Like, almost, <laughs> almost to the point where they should have done this, but they didn't. But th that, I think, speaks to how much respect that they had for even people that they, that they considered that they disagreed with. Or like the there was so much deference taken to officials in the church. Mm -hmm. And so it's just so bizarre to witness such strong arming happening with this current papacy because it because just, the previous papacies were like just the Borgia, about power. Borgia popes. Josh, you've made so many interesting uh, theological points too about how 
as soon as Pope Francis got in as the Pope, how he basically just directly changed something that Pope Benedict did. I think that was about, was it about the Latin mass? Yeah. And again, I'm not a Latin mass guy, so don't pretend like this right. is my hobby horse. The thing is- Right. But I think that just speaks back to the respect that previous popes had, because all that the popes are safeguarding is the eternal truce of the church. It's not like they're creating their own doctrine, like, oh, this is something new we discover. We're going to do this now. It's just reaffirming what has always been taught, what's always been the tradition. And there just feels like a really different strain going on right now. And to people that listen to the podcast, I've had a few people email in. Thank you for doing so, loopcast.catholicvote.org, who are concerned that we're too critical of the current pope. Um, what I would say to that, I think it keeps coming up like this. I mean, I didn't even, I really honest do not wish that I did not have to talk about this today. Uh, I don't, I don't enjoy having to be critical of the Pope. I wish that we had a papacy that was inspirational to Catholics all over the world that are safeguarding the church and helping people live their faith. But when we see these very obvious petty power moves going on, I think we owe it to you. We owe it to all Catholics to be honest about it. And I would we're agree not with that. honest about it and we just yeah. we just brush it to the side. That to me isn't charity or truth. How did it serve the church in the United States oh, in boy. the seventies and eighties and nineties when Catholics were like not critical about our bishops when bad things were happening with regards to the sex abuse exactly. scandal? Exactly. Right. And it drove me kind of crazy. I'm like, look at what's going on. This is like how do you shift this? Like to me, I was like, this is the the biggest crime I could think of, like somebody molesting somebody. I mean, I would like to have have the death penalty, frankly. If I were Pope, I would institute the death penalty for any predator or priest. Boom, overnight, you're gone. Like, gone, gone. And people are like, well, I mean, you have to understand the church. I don't, what do you mean the church is different? Like, this is an abominable no. crime. Sin is sin. And people yeah. should have been more upset about this in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And because people were too deferential to the office we had a lot of problems i think the united states did have a problem with clericalism and i have no problem with it let me tell you what obviously that's the problem some people like you're too critical i i used to work the national catholic register and i'd say some of this stuff like why does that bishop get rid of this guy he's a total distant or or the sex abuse why is he you know that guy should be the pope should call him on the phone to say you're gone cardinal law goodbye you know, like, come on. Well, the, the church doesn't work like this. It's not like it's a business. It's like, yeah, well, maybe a little bit of that would help, frankly. Oh, you're too American, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And this lady, she was a very sweet lady, Italian lady. And she was just like, Josh, you need to have more, you need to have more respect for the office. I'm, like, I'm not the one who doesn't have respect for the office. That guy's the guy who doesn't the have respect the for the office. The guy in the office doesn't have respect for the office. He's the one who's the problem. He's the abusive or neglectful father. Get him out. And it was funny because she's an Italian, which doesn't make sense to me. I said, because I didn't grow up around Italians, but in Italy, Italians from Italy, they are absolutely like, whatever, you know, ah, they're, I mean, they're, I don't, (laughs) I don't see Italians as very clerical, but in the United States, they are. Why? I'm like, what is going on with this? The big problem with clericalism in the United United States is it has its origins in the Irish church. And I'm not against Irish. I married an Irish woman. I love the Irish people, okay? This is not- like, Guinness. I'm not, I, I'm not trying to say I'm not without my own sins, okay? But the, the American Catholics from, I have a big influence on, from the Irish. The Irish made up 50% of the bishops in the United States for the first like 100 some years. 
and the Irish were very much, oh, you, you got to respect father. You got to respect the bishop. I mean, of course you do. Yes. But that doesn't mean you should never be like questioning or that doesn't seem to make sense. Or why are we doing this? How dare you? Like, no, that, that is not helpful. That is not, and it's certainly not helpful in the 21st century that, to carry that same attitude forward. So we should be able to ask questions. And if we're being stupid, give us the right answer and help us out. But don't just say, hey, shut up. Pray, mm-hmm. pay, and obey. Yeah. That doesn't cut it. Give us the right answer. Right. And one of the points being made um, you know, among Catholic thinkers right now regarding the Burt case is, look, the best thing the Vatican can do is, if this is true, it's an atrocity. This is Bishop Strickland, actually. If this is true, that he's doing this to Burke, it's an atrocity. If it is untrue, it needs to be corrected immediately. Meanwhile, the Vatican press office, the head of the press office is like, I have no comment. You should talk to Cardinal Burke. And Cardinal Burke's like, I haven't heard anything. You know, and so it's this this silence on the part of the Vatican, the refusal to correct or clarify that is so damaging. And something else about the the respect point and respect for the office. One of one of my favorite parts of talking to Eric Sammons in that interview last week about about Strickland. We hadn't intended to talk about Strickland or the papacy or anything on our interview, but that was what the story was that week. Um, but he made the point that American Catholic and in particular you know, Orthodox, conservative-leaning Catholics, we made the mistake during JP2's papacy, John Paul the Great's papacy, in a way, and Benedict XVI's papacy, of this sort of um, overconfidence in the personality of the Pope, and this, uh, you know, investing our faith and our hope in the Church in a person who well, is not Jesus Christ. Eh, I mean, I, yes, no. a little. Oh, a little. Oh. I think that Francis Uh-oh. has been a healthy correction of that. That there yeah, is. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> I made him laugh <laughs> I there. Mean. Yeah, <laughs> it has been a hell. I'm, I'm one speaking way of in muted it. British terms, but right. I think that it's a colonoscopy. It, it is no. a danger. It is a danger for Catholics to to either swing the way of clericalism and you can't question anything, or also invest too much in the personality of the okay. person in the office because you like them. I yes, do Josh. agree that we had too much of an what's called ultra monetism, which is th- yeah. the thought that the the Pope as like sure the Pope is like <laughs> the king, to... so is the you know he's going to do everything and everything he does is going to be flawless. Right. Okay, yes, there was a little bit too much of that from seventy eight to two thousand thirteen. Five at well thirteen, yeah, yeah, including obviously that Pope Francis cured that. Um, but the problem was, why did that occur? That didn't occur in a vacuum either. I mean, right. did, let's not let's be perfectly honest with the U.S. bishops and the priests from 1978 to at least 2000, like bastions of mediocrity. Right? It, I mean, it, it was disappointing, vanilla, to say the least. <laughs> ah, you can't go to mass on a Saturday if, uh, and a Sunday. Oh, you know. Too Holy damn obligation is is uh, is removed. I mean, give me a break. This drives me crazy. Like you look at other faiths and they ask a lot upon you. And the thing is, when it comes to ma- you know, like if we're trying to convince, like let's say the world, marriage is a good thing. And people are like, well, gosh, you have to you know subvert yourself. You have to put yourself down and serve others. And it sounds like it's not fun. It's like actually, it's in giving you receive. And the best things in life are a challenge, right? Well, that's the same thing with the church. Like, if the church has like no demands on you, like ah, can't, yeah, can't expect you to do that. 
oh, go ahead and have a burger on a Friday in Lent, whatever. You know, it's like, what? Like, come on. I get on. the no demands point. I get the no demands point. But what, what, how does that factor into the I think the, celebrity I think status? The, I think the U.S., the, 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 the experience of the Catholic Church in the United States in the immediate aftermath of the Second Vatican Council throughout the 70s and 80s uh, and 90s, there was just the, you know, we got rid of so many traditions. We got rid of, you know, we got comfortable pews. We got rid of the statues. We don't pray the rosary anymore. I mean, this is before your time, Tom. I know this sounds crazy, but no, this is the, this was the case. Like all through, I mean, I it live in Michigan. It was the stripping all, of the altars. I have yeah. stories that, that go on forever. And people would collect the statues and so because they'd throw them in the dumpster otherwise and i i would that's i had crazy. statues of saint andrew saint joseph come on bring them to give them to me i'll hold on to them i held on to them for a while that's crazy they were just getting rid of it uh, yeah. yes whitewashing all the paintings beautiful the statues saint yeah. i got it just around the other the other room it's like what are you guys doing uh, these treasures and all these when did that stop it really stopped i would say mid 90s and then you started to what happened then at that point is the younger priests, we start getting these younger priests who are more conservative, and they'd hear about a church that's getting, oh, we'll take it, you know. And so, you know, we're not having as much of that anymore. And, you know, a lot of these bishops that are very radic so radically bizarre. left, like Weekland in Milwaukee, Utner uh, and Saginaw, they're gone now, these dinosaurs. Um, but now we have the Francis bishops coming up. So like that's, uh, it's shifting. Yeah, too. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, and those and those are kind of aging. Like now your too, new bishop because, is in Connecticut. Uh, yeah, like my new archbishop who will be installed in April. When our current, but uh, yes. yeah, that's interesting to hear you guys say because I've really ever I I grew up very very young in a very green carpet Catholic church, for lack of a better word. Uh, but then right after that, almost from that right after that point to now, all I've ever been in are beautiful Catholic churches that. Are basically art. I, I yeah, I would say art. And that's Most a singular experience, though. There are still Catholics who have never been in a beautiful Catholic church or heard beautiful sacred music. There are still Catholics like that in the United States. I'd say it's the majority. It kind of makes me sad. Yeah, yeah it is sad. It is. I, my my church, Saint Francis Xavier in Petoskey, is an absolutely gorgeous church, and there is a whole book about it. Um, there's this movement 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago to completely, you know, trash it and get rid of all the beautiful things. And they brought in this consultant and Michael Rose wrote a whole book about it, Recovation or whatever. And that the, the rock solid traditionalists in this area, they dug their heels in and it, they, it would have been a lot worse. Uh, but yeah, no, that those, these are the stories, you know? So like, you, you hear this stuff, all this, uh, all the crazy stuff with the sex abuse scandal. That's one whole thing, which is obviously horrible. And then you have other things where, like, the church is wanting to get rid of all these beautiful statues, and they're like, "We don't need, it. we don't do the rosary. That's okay. That's for grandmas." And we all we want is kumbaya and church of nice. And then you have someone like Pope John Paul II, who's like, "Actually, you know, I love praying the rosary." And by the way, the I love the teachings of the church. I think they're illuminating and they're helpful and they actually have an answer for the problems we have of the day, you know, and, and he talked about the theology of the body and God's understanding of human sexuality and everything. And, and, and conservatives in this country were like, yeah, wait a minute, maybe we should get rid of all this stuff. This guy's onto something. So why, why did he have such a high affection? It's like, 
why can't we have bishops and priests like that guy? And now maybe we are starting to get some of them come through. But that gives me a little bit of hope. I mean, that gives me a little bit of hope. If we think about how negative and sad a lot of the papacy's been, uh, there could be a real positive figure to come fill the vacuum, God willing. Mm-hmm. There always is. Throughout church history, there's always God fills the vacuum, right? Those are the saints. Those are the doctors of the church. And there, there is, there are those people here now on earth and time will tell who they are. Uh, okay. Uh, speaking of, we have a positive, we have yes. a positive American bishop. We love giving credit to our American bishops. Uh, so unfortunately he had to act in what seems like kind of a dumb situation, but so there, for those unfamiliar, Notre Dame, Indiana, not, I'm not far from it, but Notre Dame is a famous Catholic college. Catholic will, you know, debated now. Uh, but there is a women's co- traditional women's college across the way called St. Mary's College and also in Notre Dame, Indiana. And it is only for women. It's one of the oldest women's colleges in America, I believe. Oldest Catholic. And yeah. oldest Catholic, yeah. And so they have decided uh, for the uh, next semester, the fall, that they will allow men who identify as women to join the college. So it would be all women and then men, and some men. who identify as women. Yeah, and then some men. So it'll Therefore, be co-ed. making it no longer a women's college. Yeah. It'll be a co-ed college. <laughs> uh, unless you actually are a man and identify as a man, I guess. So uh, disappointing on multiple levels, I'd say. Uh, and the president uh, told faculty in an email sent that they'll consider... The, the specific language is St. Mary's will consider undergraduate applicants whose sex assigned at birth is female or who consistently live and identify as women. That's the exact language. So the bishop of the area sees this and was kind of like, what the heck, guys? Uh, wasn't consulted on this. Uh, why are you doing this? This is not according to church teaching at all. Uh, and so he wrote a very strongly worded letter. And he and made it public. What I especially, and he made it public. Yeah, he and published I it. especially appreciated this because the rationale given by the college was Pope Francis wants us to be welcoming of more people. <laughs> That's the language used. This is what I was saying. The, the mess, right? Exactly. Yes. But then the bishop goes, he's like, oh, you care about what Pope Francis says. Here are all the things that Pope Francis says about men and women and what we should do. Pope Francis has been Catholic on that. That's true. It is true. Correct. So this is a part of Heroes and Zeros, and there's a full list of Heroes and Zeros, but this is Bishop Rhodes. We're awarding a Hero of the Month. If you want to check that out, it's on our website. We'll leave a link in there. But Erica, why, why was this a heroic action? Why was he worthy of this award? Absolutely. So I, I love this story because it really, it encapsulates so much of what we talk about here, that the, the mess, quote unquote, being made at, by the Synod in Rome, by Pope Francis with some of his statements, it has practical consequences. And the practical consequence in Notre Dame, Indiana, is that women at this college are being erased, and now it'll just be whoever want, a woman is whoever identifies as a woman, right? Which is ridiculous on intellectual as well as just practical levels. But Bishop Rhodes here coming out, and and I will say too, the timing of this made it particularly courageous. Like we're seeing uh, post Strickland, uh, post Synod, and he comes out and says this is, I, I am the bishop, I was not consulted, but he doesn't rest on his authority as bishop, like, you just got to listen to me and I say you can't do this. He rests on church teaching and he brings in Francis himself. And he says, I urge you, the board of trustees, to correct your admissions policy and fidelity to the Catholic identity and mission that it is charged to protect. 
And the fact that he published it, a lot of bishops might do this and just kind of like send it quietly to the president and be like, hey, guys, can you just consider this? But he just put it out there because I think Rhodes understands that this was a public gesture by a Catholic college causing scandal and perpetuating the confusion that so many Catholics are experiencing right now in the church. And for him to be a voice of clarity, and it's not like, oh, this is a pastoral, this is like up for grabs. It was just like, no, you can't do this. You need to reconsider and we'll see what happens next. But it definitely is a bold move given the whole atmosphere environment that we're in right now in the church. And Josh, question for you, because I've brought this up previously and I think it's important for this answer. I almost read this at first and I was like, this kind of reminds me of what Republicans do a little bit. They're like, oh, the left is so bad. Democrats are so bad. Rah, rah, rah. I'm going to get on Fox News and talk about how bad it is, but then not actually do anything about it. So like in this case, the bishop isn't going to revoke the Catholic label or actually have punishments. He's just going to write a strongly worded letter. Ooh, a well, letter. I disagree with That'll that. That'll show I mean, him. Yeah, I like yeah, this. Yeah, no, I disagree with the analogy. I mean, first of all, he asks in this letter, I urge the Board of Trustees of St. Mary's College to correct its admissions policy infidelity to the church I, Catholic identity and mission it is charged to protect. So he's he's asking them to, to, to change their mind. That's number one. Number two, he does have an ability to do something if they, if they snub him. He could say, this college is no longer can be identified as Catholic. So it's still good. They still have freedom. There are colleges across the country that used to be Catholic that aren't anymore. There's Marist College in New York. And they're like, yeah, we don't, have to, we don't have to even pretend we're, we're not Catholic anymore. I mean, I wish they would. John Zamerick, he's, he's a columnist. He goes, these col other colleges should follow suit, like Fordham and Georgetown. They should just rename themselves after, you know, heroes of the sexual revolution, like Alfred Kinsey and you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Hugh Hefner, because like you don't believe in the Catholic teachings, might as well just Gloria be true, Steinem women's be true college. to yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so with regards to St. Mary's, if St. Mary's, which is not, it's separate from the University of Notre Dame, but it's located in Notre Dame, Indiana. If St. Mary's wants to be co-ed, fine. I think that's kind of dumb because there are so few uh, single sex colleges right, anymore, right. and the number of women yep. in college is higher than men. It's like sixty uh, plus 60, percent. 40. So yeah, make yourself move. Give yourself a distinct, unique place in the market because it is a market. You know, whatever. But uh, it, you know, this idea that you're playing this game, this gender ideology that you're you're bowing, you're prostrating to the the rainbow jihad. That's the worst thing. Like, stop it. I mean, give me a break <laughs> with this stuff. So the, pope, uh, the bishop is awesome. here is right to, to say, you need to change your policy here. Major shout out to Bishop Rhodes. Big fans. Uh, speaking, of, speaking of Rainbow Jihad. <laughs> be looking in the loop for our heroes and zeros. And we're also going to do a bracket uh, later on in uh, December here. Where we're going to go through all the different today. heroes. It's, it's today, Josh. That's right. Today. It starts today. Yeah. And throughout the month of December, you'll be able to vote on these guys. And you tell us who you think is the, you know, we have that the brackets for March Madness College Basketball in March. Yeah, this is a little foretaste of this. In December, we're going to go through all the different heroes. You tell me who's the, who should be the hero I of the love, year. I love March Madness so much. Anything with a bracket, sign me up. <laughs> I know. I like it's it. the best. All right. Well, check go, your loop. Go take part check in the bracket. Check your morning loop. Sick. Go, go to your bracket, Tom. Vote. And like Chicago, vote early and often. Uh -huh. So 
Uh, okay. So that being said, we I, I'm going to pop the mailbag in here now. Yeah. So we've had some some repeated questions about our personal lives, which kind of cracked me up because it's like who it's funny that people care. Um, but I think that I'm grateful that you all care. But we have a few questions that we've all been asked about personally in comments or an email or whatever. So one that I'd say the one that's come up the most. Uh, I'm frequently referred to as Pogo, and that might be confusing. I actually see why that'd be confusing because we I've never actually said why that is. Um, true, true. I'll give you the true story and a much more fun story. So, true story. Uh, my last name's Pogasic. I come from a long lineage of Croatians. Uh, and so abbreviated Pogo, I've been called that. That's like my intern, probably my biggest internal nickname here. I've kind of been called that at different times in my life too. So Pogo. However, I got an email in from a priest and he he knows who he is. Shout, shout out. He said that when he hears me called Pogo, it reminds him of a comic that he used to read in the 70s. Apparently, there is a comic by Walter Kelly's, Walter Kelly that was written in the 50s. It was kind of syndicated in the 50s. Uh, called Pogo, and it was about an opossum named Pogo. And so I went and looked, and I'm like, this is kind of my spirit animal in a way. Like, I I know I don't. Spirit animal is possum. (laughs) I might be this cartoon possum. It's like the ugliest creature on the face of the earth. (laughs) He, you got to see the comic though. He is known for this. uh, He was kind of like in political satire at the time. And the line that was famous was, I've seen the enemy and he is me. Uh, uh, and that was mm-hmm. about pollution. So I might anger very Josh. Deep, as, you know, very deep, Yeah. Uh, but so there's that for one. But then also this possum ran for president and his logo for president was, I go Pogo and, or we go Pogo in certain instances. And uh, at the time, it actually caused a riot at Harvard. So in the fifties, people, I guess were pretty, upset at the status quo and i go pogo is a play on i like ike and college students actually supported him for president and i have also made a hypothetical presidential run in my life and my logo is tpo for the people so um <laughs> i i just feel like there's all these strange connections and maybe one day i too will be responsible for a ride at harvard so shout out to that priest who told me about this comic um it's kind of I'm discovering a lot about myself. So now our Slack channels are full of pogo strips. So thank you, Father, for bringing him yeah, into our I'm lives. I'm gonna have to change my my profile picture to the little pogo to the possum. So uh, any any comment from the peanut gallery on? Well, I call you Pogo because I still don't know what your first name is. <laughs> yeah, it's like like the uh, Ron Swanson. Like I like to keep people on their toes. You like call people you know by the wrong name. Or like what's your what's your name again? I've, I've known you for five years. Yeah, that's a brilliant idea, Steve. I think Ron Swanson is Mercer's <laughs> spirit animal. Yeah, seriously. Um, okay, so that's first first item of the mailbag. Second item, uh, Erica. So there's been people, people have been very kind. I don't even know if I pass along all of it, and I will, but uh, people have been very kind and encouraging about your, your latest addition to your family. Aw, thanks, uh, guys. Congratulations, as always. But they've heard you say that you have seven kids, or this will be your seventh kid, but they've also heard you say that you're ha- you have eight kids. And so I... Uh, we I we have like discussed this as to whether or not you know I want to talk about it, but Erica, I want to give you the opportunity now. Why have you said different numbers? Sure. So part of it is that I need to make a decision on how I'm going to present this publicly. <laughs> but the the reason that I have two different numbers is that our fifth child uh, did pass away uh, before he was born, and so we have we consider ourselves the parents of eight 
immortal souls that we are aware of. And we are, we are confident that we named him Ransom. His name's Ransom after Jesus Christ, who is the ransom for our sins. Uh, and also a C.S. Lewis shout out for Space Trilogy. My favorite C.S. Lewis books are about a man named Dr. Ransom. But so Ransom, we, we are confident, is with God, uh, whatever that looks like for the unbaptized infants. And so we, we talk about him. Uh, our kids are aware that he that God created him, but he's just not with us here on earth. And so I, I think in my mind, I have eight children, and it comes out sometimes. And then when I'm speaking to people in the world, though, I, I try and limit myself to seven. So I think for the purposes of this community here on Loopcast, I can confidently say eight. I'm guessing most of our listeners would consider an unborn child who died a human being who is still an immortal soul Obviously. and living with God. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to go with eight. And uh, yeah, so we're expecting our eighth child, our seventh, who will be hopefully here with us on earth for a long time, if it's God's will. And that is why I said two different numbers. That's really beautiful. It is beautiful. I, I do think a lot of people can relate to that. And, and I think it, I'm, I'm happy that you're saying that because I think people should feel more comfortable discussing the immortality of, of children that that you know were lost in miscarriage or even stillbirth or anything like that right because um, they can pray for us i mean they're real like it's almost like having a saint in your back well pocket. and it's yeah. like there was a stigma for many decades women just did not talk about it and that's not helpful like you know let allow people the opportunity to, to talk about it because it is a very uh difficult experience at times and it can be a beautiful moment too obviously as well it can bring you closer to our lord but you know, the the idea that, oh, you're not supposed to speak about that, not supposed to talk about that, that was not, that's, again, not helpful. If people if people want to talk about it, to, you should. Exactly. And, you know, we were really blessed in our, um, throughout that experience that that God gave us, that we, we had priests around us at the time. It was the uh, Dominican friars of the province of St. Joseph, and they were very supportive. We, we did have the child's body, and we were able to have a full funeral. In the church, we have a burial site with a gravestone, and that was a huge part um, for us of the grieving process, and also just sort of making him that ransom a permanent part of our family. And um, so, for any women who are going through that right now, I would encourage you to reach out to an understanding priest, um, or yeah, shoot me an email. I'd, I'd be happy to to talk yeah, to you. Yeah, there are resources yeah. online too for. Yeah, Catholic there's so many resources now. Amen. Loopcast at catholicvote.org if you would like to get in touch. Thanks, Pogo. <laughs> uh, I will make sure they get to you. There. Uh, Josh, you're wearing a blue sweatshirt, and that's very appropriate. So we had an email come in uh, when we talked about Catholic colleges. And we talked to Catholic colleges a lot. Actually, a little bit of a teaser. We talked to one of the latest, Harmel Academy in Grand Rapids. It was, it was recorded in a workshop. Uh, which is very appropriate. It's a, it's a trade school, but incorporates Catholic uh, great books in Socratic style elements. And it was incredible. So keep an eye out for that one. I'm looking forward to getting that one out. But Josh, uh, we have people have called you out. Uh, they said that you should only send your kid to a Catholic college. And so they're like, why do the hosts talk about Hillsdale all the time? Mm. Hillsdale is not Catholic. And honestly, they have a point. And they popped off about it when Erica said, because Erica dropped her daughter off at Hillsdale. And then that was the yeah. And then I got pregnant. Knew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And yeah. then mentioned that you had another one coming. And it's like, so someone's popping off about Hillsdale. Why are you promoting Hillsdale? It's like, 
I don't know what you're talking about, me promoting Hillsdale. <laughs> <laughs> for the, for the my... audio listeners, he is wearing a Hillsdale college sweatshirt. Yeah. So, so Josh, why would you say Hillsdale should be considered among, you know, good Catholic colleges? I mean, if someone wants to say you should send your kid to a, a very vibrant Catholic college, whether it's Franciscan or Benedictine or University of Mary, you know, Christendom, there's a lot of them. I, if I don't mention everyone, and it doesn't mean I'm trying to slight on one of these colleges. That's great. In fact, I mean, you, you saw me last, the last episode, I was wearing my University of Mary sweatshirt. You know, that's true. <laughs> Still haven't received swag I from need them, my by swag. the way. Get on it, you, Mary. Come it's on. a top contender for the Mercer household. It's a good school. Uh, but Hill, you know, Hillsdale. Well, why Hillsdale? Uh, is Hillsdale Catholic? No, it is not. Um, there are at least 25% of the students that go to Hillsdale are a Catholic, and the Catholics that go to Hillsdale are vibrant. They have a house on campus called the Grotto. They have, uh, obviously, there's the parish in, in the town where everyone goes to Sunday Mass, and then on campus, they have, they have Mass every Thursday. The Catholics there are on fire. Uh, at least a third of the faculty there are Catholic, and they're really good, uh, holy men and women who are teaching at Hillsdale. It's it. I like to joke. It's like a de facto Catholic school. And by the way, I'll, we'll we'll put this in the show notes. There's a video that I I, I shared with people last year. Uh, there was like 25 people who can who came to the uh, and joined the Catholic Church at St. Anthony's in Hillsdale. These are all almost all of them were college students who became Catholic as they go to Hillsdale and they encountered all these Catholic professors and students. They found the trueness of the church and became Catholic. So this is a great story. And, do, you know, is it a very good school? It is a very good school. Um, and they and they have great sound Christian values. Everyone there, uh, for the most part, I mean, the rock solid uh, Christian values, pro-life. I mean, it's very pro-family. It's a great place to go. And I would say this, someone who's dogging on it, it's like, listen, I would absolutely rather have my my daughter go to Hillsdale College than to go to St. Mary's where they're not sure what a man and a woman is. Mm, so just so because true. something says it's Catholic doesn't mean they are. And just because, I, in fact, I'll take it a step further. Do. I do would that. rather my son or daughter go to a state university like Michigan State or Texas A&M and get involved with the Catholic group on that campus than to go to a fake Catholic school like Georgetown or Fordham, where I know their faith will get lost. Are you kidding me? Of course. So Hillsdale, I'm very proud of Hillsdale. I graduated there, class of 1999, and I walked in there an atheist and walked out a Catholic. So do I like Hillsdale College? You bet I do. Hillsdale, Hillsdale saved us from loud atheists, Josh, and now we just get loud Catholic, Josh. It's awesome. <laughs> it's a great um, trade. Do you know who their commencement speaker was last year? Yeah, Bishop Barron. Bishop Barron. Bishop Barron. All right. Oh, Erica, what was your next comment? They also had Clarence Thomas recently. He's a Catholic jurist, you know. Beast. I would I would just add to it as well that as, you know, someone who has kids now coming up through the college discernment process, it's very individual to your child that sending, you know, sending a certain child to Christendom could actually be like more damaging to their faith if they're a child who is like a nonconformist 
does not likes to likes to rub up against the opposite and that's ideas against and all that. Nothing against Christendom. Christendom is Make perfect sure right. for clear. so many children. I want to be right. really clear. But yeah. when you're talking about the formation and education of a young person in these really vulnerable years, it's a discernment process. It's not just like, I will guarantee my child will be a faithful Catholic and send them to school X. X university, There's no right, guarantee. Yeah. It's an art, not a science. And I would say, you know, for certain kids, Hillsdale's a great option because it's going to force them to confront some really kind of high level challenges to their faith without your, putting them in a toxic cultural environment or dorm life. Yeah. Here's your little trivia nugget, by the way. Give me a nugget. I love nuggets. Hillsdale College's handle on Twitter used to be Hillsdale and then the number one. And this guy was able to get them the correct username, Hillsdale. I made it happen. Mercer, it's amazing. Well, that Josh, you're revealing another one of your hobbies is snapping up domain names. Well, yeah, I I make things happen. <laughs> uh, Erica, do you know the uh, mascot of Hillsdale? There's some trivia for you. You know what? I'm ashamed to say I don't, but Josh could just turn around. Uh-oh. Here we go. It's a little... Oh, the, the chargers. chargers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. You can yeah. see, you can tell Hillsdale's we great. sent Miriam there for uh, sports. I'm Although you, it yeah. really should be eagles, considering how many eagle statues there are around the campus. Yeah, the but. statues are awesome. They got Margaret Thatcher in bronze on the quad. My favorite. Yeah, one. actually, I took my my daughter in, in front of it, and I said, "Here, a picture of two Margarets." You know. So yeah. Oh, that's right. Let's just say I'm I'm confident that Hillsdale will not be tearing down statues of founding fathers. <laughs> They're making more of them. Like. That's right. New, New York, New York City Hall has just torn down Thomas Jefferson. Any any guesses why? Because he owns uh, slaves. He owns yeah. slaves. So th- this is why, and I don't even know if I want to get into this right now, but I was mad when they tore down Robert E. Lee because I this is just the beginning. That's what and Trump I was like, said. If you want to use They're the excuse, stop with just right. this. And he did say that. Yeah. He was not right. Just gonna stop here. Yeah. And he was right. I, I've always been hot, hot on that. Like, and actually, that whole thing on Charlottesville. What what he had said was that there are good people on both sides of the of the question of whether or not we should remove the statue. And the media and President Biden have continued to slander that oh, by yeah. saying he was saying they're good people with a tiki torch, you know, white supremacist neo Nazis, right? Not it's not what he is saying. Nope. No. Nah. So people it's love like the monster liberty thing. Just remember mm. that. Yeah. But but back to Hillsdale, I, I think one of the char- like characteristics that people really appreciate about Hillsdale, and I think it's also very Catholic sensible. Are they're very intellectually serious uh, about not only American tradition because it, it's a conservative school, it's like a conservative mecca basically. But anyone that's a l- intellectually serious and wants to go take a look back at the founding fathers, but also um, if you're serious about your faith, you know, with the founders of Christianity, Jesus, uh, you'll find church fathers writing. Like mm-hmm. I, I know people, a lot of Catholics that went to Ave that are like, okay, I want to go get my master's or PhD in politics. They go to Hillsdale, right? Um, so it's just, it's a great place if you're serious about, uh, the intellectual life. And I think that's very Catholic sensible. Erica, Twilight, Twilight Zone. Zone. There were so many choices this week. I could have gone with Subway Sandwich Monopoly on the sandwich world. I could have gone with solar panel industry caving in Georgia, but I'm going to talk to the moms out there. This is me telling you to get your daughters off of Instagram. Just get them off because here's the story from the Wall Street Journal this week. The Wall Street Journal did a study and they were doing investigative reports into Instagram's Reels algorithm. And they found uh, that, in fact, young girls are being targeted for essentially hardcore porn. So what they sought to determine 
was whether the algorithm would recommend um, they wanted to see what the what the algorithm would recommend to accounts that follow only young gymnasts, cheerleaders, ballet dancers, basically fit young girls. And we're talking like girls in their 10 to 18 years old range. So if you're following only these accounts, you are going to also be recommended jarring doses, and I'm quoting from the Wall Street Journal, jarring doses of salacious content to those test accounts, including risque footage of children, as well as overtly sexual adult videos, as well as ads for big U.S. brands like Disney, turns out. So again, for me, the Twilight well, Zone here isn't so- for no, Disney no, no. Isn't, that, isn't crazy, right? Right. Because if you stuff. refresh enough times, you're going to get that. So th- that's the crazy stuff. Yeah. So if your daughter is on there and she's she is a like gymnast and she follows a bunch of other young girls who are gymnasts around the country, you can bet at some point she is going to see some hardcore porn on her Instagram account. So one, they don't need to be on there too. But here's no, no, here's the twilight zone. During COVID, Instagram, which is run by Meta, which is the same company that runs Facebook, right? During COVID, Instagram hired a, an army of actual people to go through accounts manually and fact check them and suspend accounts with whom Meta had disagreements about interpretation of vaccine mandates. They spent millions, if not billions of dollars censoring Instagram accounts. They cannot account for the fact that they still have an algorithm, though, that is exposing young girls to hardcore adult porn and rumors. Right. And it's not just the hardcore yeah. stuff, which is obviously the worst. The right. softcore stuff is also bad. Like if you're if you're pumping all these images, like this is the way that girls are supposed to do, you know, act in they order should to, hold to attract themselves men. This way. Yeah. Even the soft stuff is like even if it's not nudity, it's just highly sexualized, right. suggestive stuff is bad news. And it's bad. But the reason why, it's the same reason that Pornhub doesn't go on and take all the child porn off. It makes money. Like those ads, the, the point about the ads that you put mm-hmm. up, the salacious content that's highly addictive and is leading people down these rabbit holes, they serve up ads to these people. It makes them money. That's why not, they're not going to spend money like they did during COVID to go censor everything. They could and they don't. It's the same thing with Pornhub. They could and they don't. It makes them money. So like, so that's why we need lawmakers to step in and say yeah. no. And in fact, I think- It's I not would, good for public health. Yeah. It's bad news. Uh, obviously, pornography bad news. But then also, I just think- so uh, anyone under 18 shouldn't be using social media. Right. I would we know it's addictive. That. We know it's connected to depression and suicide spikes and everything. And For 14-year-old girls, cigarettes would be safer than Instagram in many ways. Exactly. Right. Honestly, well, it, is it a sounds drug. crazy. I, I, it is a drug. I, I want to credit the doctor that was doing this, but she had such a great line on this. Like, Social media is a drug. And just like other drugs, if you want to use it, first off, there's age limits on drugs. And then second off, you need to have a very proactive schedule for why you're taking the drugs and when you're taking the drugs and how you consume it. But social media is kind of touted as this safe, easy entry, low barrier to entry. People use it as a way to regulate themselves, regulate their emotions, regulate. So it's it's a coping thing. And people that use drugs that way end up drug addicts. So it's uh, but of course, like because this is a money thing, like they don't care. Not to say that people care about drugs either, because Purdue Pharma pulled off the biggest heist in, in history by addicting the entire country pretty much to op- opioids. So I'm not even saying that drugs themselves are good. But if you, as a serious person, want to engage in it, you have to be very proactive and careful about your inputs. 
So I just don't like the way that social media is talked about. It's just kind of harmless. Everyone has to do it. Right. Like it's a hobby. It's not just a hobby. Right. right. It's just serious. You have to be very intentional. And there can be benefits. I don't, I'm not one of the people that are like, oh, there's no benefits to it. Obviously, there are. Like we're talking to you partially because of it. But um, you have to be very careful about it, especially with your kids. Okay. So uh, we have the next, uh, we have the NFL version of Nicholas Sandman. So uh, I have never been more mad at a journalist than probably the Sandman thing was the last time I've been this mad. So this this guy works for Deadspin, which is a failing sports newspaper. Uh, Karen J. Phillips. And Car- it's C-A-R-R-O-N, but it sounds like Karen for a reason. Uh, so he wrote a hit piece on a 10-year-old at a Chiefs game for clicks. And so the article is titled, The NFL Needs to Speak Out Against the Kansas City Chiefs Fan in Blackface Native Headdress. So... The picture that was used, and this also makes me mad, is the same thing with Salmon. The picture that was used was a kid. The, the, the reality, the truth of it was there was a kid in a Chiefs jersey, uh, a Chief headdress, and then he double painted his face. Chiefs colors. One color is black. One color is red. The picture that was used was his face turned to the side so that you could only see the black. Now, And he's 10 years old. He's, this isn't like an 18-year-old kid. This is a 10-year-old boy. Any serious adult knows that this is the truth, especially in 2020. Like you think people are walking around with blackface like, no, this isn't um, Justin Trudeau. This is a 10 year old in an NFL game. OK, we all know the truth like this. This guy knew the truth. Um, so he writes this hit piece on a 10 year old, used a deceptive camera angle and then just went on and on about how racism is a problem. Uh, Roger Goodell is not going to say anything. And I went and looked at the guy, too, because I'm like, there's no way this isn't in a vacuum. This guy would make this observation. He has to has, have a, a history, a, a history. So he's written some other articles. White fans were entertained by black athletes a day after a racist killed black people in Buffalo. This is what white supremacy looks like. This is on Desmond as well. I'm from Saginaw. Spent a lot of time in Flint. I've never seen this many white people in Flint in my life. It's dot dot concerning. Um, this guy's a race baby. Uh-huh. Now. Honestly, it's on Deadspin for, I mean, he's a senior editor, but like Deadspin put this out and then this guy, Karen Phillips, doubled down on social media to be like, nope, I mean what I said. And of course he turned the replies off because everyone was like, dude, what are you doing? This kid's a 10 year old and he does does what every NFL fan does. And so I'm looking forward to the defamation suit that this 10 year old is going to bring on this guy. And it might ruin Deadspin genuinely because it is an insane defamation. Like this would be, this is the easiest slam dunk win I think ever. I mean, this guy's dragging this 10 year old through the mud, but, um, and again, it's worth like, noting just these sports, for alone, example, guys. you know, we, Seriously. the United States has a complicated history with American Indians as well. Obviously blacks. Now blacks, we mistreated more because slavery is worse, obviously in many ways, but like the American Indians could say, well, wait a minute. Now there's a lot of atrocities, you know, trail tears and, and treaties, you backstabbing and all that stuff, the fighting. But it's worth it's worth recalling. There are a lot of teams that w- when you're trying to rally all your fans and get them excited about it, like you want to pick a name that people respond to. You mm-hmm. know? Now, if you're trying to get people excited about your team, like you want something that signifies strength, bravery, toughness. So Kansas City would pick the Chiefs as a way to honor American Indians. Now you could say Redskins was too much of a nickname and got it off, but there was a guy who was uh, an American Indian who played for that team and that you know, it was his nickname and he took it affectionately. Whatever. Get beyond it. 
But the the whole point is like, for example, Florida State, they, they're the Seminoles. The Seminole tribe loves it. They they embrace it. And and the thing is, is like you wouldn't name a team something if you were trying to denigrate it. Like, so for example, are Irish upset that the University of Notre Dame is the Fighting Irish? No. Are a bunch of Scandahoovians in Minnesota upset that they're called the Vikings? No. I love the Vikings. <laughs> I think the Lions in Sub-Saharan Africa are, are really upset right Definitely. now that the Lions are, it's defamatory. <laughs> but the, the the things with the Chiefs too is they've actually gotten it okayed with local tribes in, in Kansas City. So like even the local tribes are chill with it. That's the thing like uh, that got exposed, I think with the Mexican stuff, like wearing a sombrero. Yeah, like- the Mexicans don't care. They think it's awesome that people are partaking in their culture. Like, who cares? It's like all these, they're like, just No one likes bears. to be mocked. Trying to ma- so if you're doing that, that's not okay. But if you're actually saying, hey, we're having fun, let's go. Yeah. Right. But I actually, dis- I think that if you're doing like something that's stereotypical to, a, like, for example, like Mexican people like with tacos and you're like, oh my gosh, Cinco de Mayo, let's have tacos. Like, or I'm going to dress up as a taco. Yeah, no one's isn't thinking that the that weirdest like, thing? Be like, you're appropriating the culture. Like, don't you want people to embrace yeah. your culture and we do your love things? Tacos. Like, isn't that isn't right. that what victory looks like? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's no nor- there's no Viking food that anyone want to eat, so I can't really get you know. It's true. Yeah, that, that's why we left. Why? That's why we left Norway. There's no farms. Like we went to Ireland. We're like, hey, the food's you terrible. Got any food? You got any food? <laughs> that's not all they look for, but. The purple purple people eaters is too appropriate of a nickname of the Vikings. I think they ate people at one point. But nah, dude, what are anyway, you talking about, bro? Um, Mercer, everybody ate oh, people. Are you at offended? Am I offended? <laughs> yeah, I think you're. Are you? You're triggered. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't know if Mercer triggered. is triggerable. All right, Josh, neutralize on. Well, it's just it's too easy. The media. I mean, after what you said, Tom, I would just like to say there's one guy who makes the point. You don't hate the media enough. It's true. Or journalists. The yeah. New York oh, Times man. ran a headline that said, a disfigured woman whose case has become well-known is among the Palestinians released. And it shows the photo, and it, like, oof, it's tough, because her, her face is is scarred. And you're like, oh, gosh, the poor lady. That's m- maybe what you'd think if you didn't know, right? You know, oh, gosh, you know, she's, she's hurt. And then you realize, oh, huh, yeah, that's it. This disfigured woman is disfigured because she's a car bomber and she blew herself up. She was trying to kill a bunch of Israelis. And then she had the audacity to man that her Israeli captors pay for her plastic surgeries. <laughs> so the New York Times decides to refer to this lady as a disfigured woman whose case has become well known as among the Palestinians released. The Israelis are so desperate to get the people that, that were imprisoned in Gaza including like a children under the age of one years old. Babies, right. That they're like, we'll even let this woman who tried to detonate a car bomb and kill a bunch of Israelis, we'll even let her go so we can get some of our people back. And that's how the New York Times treats it. Yeah, it was a it I was just a don't think you hate story. the media enough. Right, because the implication that they allowed people reading the New York Times to walk away with is that she was somehow disfigured by the brutal Israeli captors. Like that's right. That's the internal monologue people are having when they say, "Oh my gosh, look what the Israelis did to this woman." They are willing to allow their audience to be misled. They want their yeah. audience to be misled. Just a Faustian bargain for the Israelis going on here, because, like you said, Josh, they they want to get these babies back. They want they want the the families to be reunited, and these people have been through hell since October seventh. 
And as a result, not only this woman who's a car bomber, but they released hundreds, almost close to 200 now, I believe, um, Palestinian people who had been imprisoned. And the way that the New York Times put it in another article was uh, women and minors. And these, some of these minors were high schoolers who had been stabbing Israeli border guards. They had been arrested at the border for attempting to set off suicide bombs. And so, again, just the way it was framed that the Israelis are holding women and children captive was very misleading. And again, yeah, yeah. I don't think I would have let this woman go if she tried to detonate a car bomb. Like, um, no, actually, see you later. If you think the New York Times is is somehow trustworthy on domestic it's matters, and this is how they're covering international matters. I mean, this is evil. This is this is just what you said with that deadspin thing, which is you know why it's such a stupid thing to get so crazy about. You know, and people can kind of roll the right. Oh, it's just a game. It's just well, as a ten year old kid, you shouldn't attack a kid like that. And like this, though, it's like this is really evil in both circumstances. When you point out with that reported this New York Times headline, in both circumstances, they know the truth and they want to prevent their audience from knowing the truth. And they're wanting the, their audience to believe something that's not true. It's right. total. It's just yeah, that is evil. That's not like, oh, let's, you know, kind of a little deception with the headline or the photo or whatever. It's like you are intentionally hoping your audience loses their cool based on stuff that you should prevent them from thinking because it's all you. It's your deception. That, that reminds me so much too. I, I watched this documentary about what's going on in San Francisco and all the guy did was go down for a day. I think he was there for a day. He was on a specific block in San Francisco. They called the Tenderloin. And I think within that day, he witnessed carjacking, people doing uh, like open air uh, fentanyl and yeah, a fentanyl, really hard drugs, uh, prostitution, uh, breaking into cars. Like this is all in one day. And I think that the people that are trying to like, so he just went with a camera crew. Like it was just, he's independent, but the people that are trying to use San Francisco to like tell something they know not to be the truth. It, it really makes me angry. And I think like to know that this exists and we have the power to change it, like we have the power to change that. But we don't they have the will. They did it overnight when Xi Jinping right. came in, but we don't have the the political, pe people in politics don't have the fortitude to change it because they, they benefit somehow from it. I mean, even a couple blocks down in San Francisco is like super safe because they have tons of, that's where Pelosi lives. So it, it, it like the deception, intentional deception to protect the status quo that benefits you, I think is extra malicious. I don't know. It just like, it frustrates me that I, I, you know what? I think my main point with this is independent journalism is at a premium right now. If you can go and provide just honest truth, just show with an iPhone footage, what's going on. That's the stuff that goes viral now, because I think everyone kind of already knows that there's people with malicious narratives that are not giving you the full truth from these men. We've had malicious actors in the media for the last few decades that have been putting out this kind of deception. We have the ability now with the internet, like, look, look at what they're doing here. They're lying. You know, so it's much easier for us to highlight it. In 1987, what, what would we do? We, you only turn on ABC, NBC, CBS, right? Yeah. Was it. And it's harder, it's harder to reach other people, other Christians, other Catholics and say, do you see what's going on here? With the internet now, we have this ability to build a community and say, Look at how they're spoon feeding this garbage. 
It's intentionally done this way. They are evil actors. They're lying on purpose. It's not a, oh, well, I, you know, everyone's got a different point of view. Nah, they are malicious. They're lying. We have the ability now to call it out and highlight it. And that's why we have done what we do here with the loop, with our daily emails, with the Loopcast. That's why we ask people to support this ministry. That's why we think this is important with Giving Tuesday and end of the year stuff campaigns. Help us reach more Catholics. One million loopers. Imagine a world where one million Catholics are reading the loop. Let's do it. All right. I got nothing yeah, more to add. That was a sick it. episode. Josh, I'm uplifted. Go. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> Um, so other ways that you can help other than helping us out uh, with donations, which we appreciate, uh, reviews, Apple podcasts, Spotify, leave us a review five stars. Appreciate it. Uh, if you want to talk to us, loopcast at catholicvote.org, uh, we have a new YouTube channel Just search the loopcast. It'll come up. Go ahead. Subscribe there. If you want to see video, I, I've, I've heard we're a pretty expressive bunch is what I've been told, which is great. Um, and other than that, pray for us. We'll be praying for you. And we have, uh, St. Thomas More, St. Fidelis and Our Lady of Guadalupe pray for us. And we will see you guys next week.